Good morning. One more time. Good morning. Oh, wow. That was really good. Thank you, Fred. Um, Last week, we had some sweet treats given out. Anybody remember that? Yeah? Some of you may have been the recipient of one. Um, So not to make you sad, but we have a few more this week. But you have to answer a few questions this time, okay? And my trusty assistant, Josefina, as I like to call her, will be handing those out. So a couple of these questions might be like, who speaks up first, who raises their hand, or who just pops up out of their chair first? Because several of you might have the answer. (laughs) You have to be Josie's friend this time. So the first question is, you guys ready? Ready? This is interactive. What are those two words? Donna Chalmers. Go, Donna. You guys have to really, let's say pop up out of your chair, okay? Because I heard a bunch of but gods, but nobody like super popped up. Okay, ready, Josie? Last week, Pastor Steve challenged us in several ways, but in this one way, I want to say, ask you, he challenged us to, let me make sure I word this right, he, st- he challenged us to come together on Sunday mornings at 9.15 to do what? <laughs> Angelina. Barb, you were a close second. I think that Angelina gets one and Barb Dunsmore because Barb and Angie both followed directions. (laughs) So at 9.15 on Sunday mornings, we're all coming together. Any of you that can, and we're meeting in the blue room in the back and spending about a half an hour in prayer. And I'll tell you, there were about 15 of us today that met back there, and it was awesome. So... Feel free to make that a part of your every Sunday morning routine, if you can. All right, who's ready to pop up? Looking for poppers, Angie. Um, Last week, Pastor Steve talked to us about Noah. Why did God choose Noah? Whoa! Good job. He was a righteous, blameless man. Good job, Leah. There's only two kinds. (laughs) Okay, so the last question. Everybody ready? Grace, are you ready? Because I think you want chocolate. This is trickier. What's the title of next week's message? Ah. Huh? Oh! That's not wrong, but it's not, that's not what I was looking for. No? So there's little subtitles to each week. Can, do you have those on a screen maybe? I don't think we ran that this morning. Oh dear. Okay. Let me think of another question off the top of my head. Um, 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 um. Um...
that's what happens on top of my head is empty. What was the title of last week's message? All right. Yay, Michelle. Thank you. As I suggested last week, um, there is a subtle, or perhaps not so subtle, biblical pattern where God's divine intervention is often introduced in Scripture by the two words, but God. Today I invite you to consider another familiar story uh, from the book of Genesis <clears throat> that shows how but God can make a difference when life seems unfair. In my experience, most people have what I would call an innate expectation of fairness. Good things should happen to good people, and bad things should happen to bad people. And it seems unfair when it appears to be reversed. Every time I get a speeding ticket, which is not very often, all right, Every time I get a speeding ticket, my immediate internal and sometimes outward response is, God, that's just not fair. Because I know that I consciously try to adhere to the speed limit way more than most other people I know. And so it just doesn't seem right or fair when I get a ticket. And what about children? I suspect that virtually every parent at some point in time, or perhaps at often points in time, has heard the groan, that's not fair, from their children. Seemingly, nobody has to teach kids that. It's just innate. It's in their gut. Ironically, the typical parental response of, nobody ever said life was going to be fair, can be a concept we struggle with as adults ourselves. And I think it's important to just briefly acknowledge right here at the get-go that our innate expectation of fairness can be highly situational. Rarely do we complain life is not fair when we get a break we do not deserve. I honestly can tell you that I don't ever recall having chosen to speed to get somewhere because I was in a hurry, arrived there without getting a ticket and saying, that's not fair, I should have got a ticket. (laughs) It's just never happened. Because my innate sense of fairness can oftentimes be kind of uh, one-directional. We can often be quick to just celebrate when we catch the break. But we're very quick to cry, can be very quick to cry foul when it goes the other way. Today the story I want us to look at is the life of Joseph. And is covered in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. And I just want to say, there is an incredible amount of teachable content in this story. And in the past, if I were to get out my files, um, I've used it for entire series of messages in the past. However, today, I'm going to step on the gas a little bit. 
and give you a quick thumbnail sketch so that we can cover the entire story of Joseph, all 13 chapters there, um, to get to the but God moment in just one message. I do encourage you in your discretionary time this week, take time to read Genesis 37 through 50 just to refresh your memory of some of the things that uh, I'm going to skim past very quickly because there's some just powerful stuff in there. Um, but the story of Joseph, it starts out with a bit of a rocky start. In Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 4, we read this. <clears throat> this is the account of Jacob's family. So Jacob is Joseph's father. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, the, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel... Jacob, Joseph's father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Many of us heard about the coat of many colors. All right, so he made this fancy robe for him. Then in verse 4 it says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, now this rocky start... So he's got ten older brothers and one itty-bitty younger brother. And now, as it kind of touched on, uh, Jacob, his father, had children for a variety of circumstances. It's in the book even before chapter 37, if you want to hear it. But he had children by four different women, which was normal in that day. All right? But of the four different women with whom he had children, one of the women was his favorite. All right? And so his favorite wife gives birth to a son fairly late in Jacob's life. And that son, because mom was favorite, that son kind of takes on favorite status. Now, it says in the story that he gave a negative report to his dad about his older brothers. And it also tells us in those few verses we read that Jacob, Joseph's father, made no effort to hide the fact that young Joseph was his favorite. Now, some of you are the older sibling, and you know what it's like to have a younger sibling who has favored status. Don't point at him right now, all right? But but we understand. Now, I want to say, as humans, sometimes we can't help but to view the details of stories like this through the filters of our own personality and life experiences. It's very easy for us to extrapolate and speculate on Joseph's actions and intentions when giving the report to his father. Now, if you've experienced it in your own life, it's very natural for us to go to the point that young Joseph was tattling on his brothers. All right? I mean, it's natural for us to go there. But what if Joseph was actually faithfully reporting on inappropriate conduct? All right? So maybe he was tattletale. Maybe he was just being responsible because his older brothers were messing up and they needed to be held accountable. We don't know, but it's interesting how we have a tendency to let our experiences and our personality flavor how we interpret that. Interesting, this whole idea of him being favored. Was he flaunting his favored status? Or was he a victim of it? Dad gives you this fancy coat... And every time you wear it, it's like your thumb and your nose at your older brothers. 
But if you don't wear it, it's like you're thumbing your nose at dad. Again, we can read into it based on our temperament and say, well, he's just a snotty little favorite son. But maybe he wasn't. We don't, we really don't know. He had no control over the fact that he was born when he was born. He couldn't help it that he's number 10 or number 11 out of 12. He couldn't help it that his mom was the favorite wife. He had no control over that. He couldn't help the fact that his dad chose to treat him differently. We don't know what he did with that. But it's easy for us to kind of fill in the blanks based on our own experience. Friends, let me just say, perhaps the older brothers would have been justified in saying, that's just not fair. That's not a little kid. He can say whatever he wants. Dad believes whatever he says, and I have to deal with the crud. Or maybe Joseph would have been justified in saying, it's not fair. I didn't do anything. But dad lavishes this stuff on me. I do my job and report on my brothers, and they hate me for it. We don't know. But I just invite you to think a little bit about where your mind goes with that. The next chapter in Joseph's life is the, what I call the life of a dreamer. And this is in Genesis 37, 5 through 11. And don't panic, we're not going to read all chapters from 37 through 50. There's just a couple passages I want to get us started with. This is just after the whole nasty report thing, and, and we know that there's nah, no love lost between the brothers. <clears throat> Joseph had a dream, and we told it to his brothers. They hated him all the more. All right, and let's see here. What's the dream? He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf... sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. Wow, what a dream. All right. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. All right. It's not over yet. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. While he told his father, while he told his father as well as his brothers, or excuse me, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now again, it's tempting to speculate and fill in the blanks on his intent for sharing his dreams. In the past, I've suggested at best it was probably poor judgment. All right? But I'm going to amend that a little bit today. You have to wrestle with. Was he flaunting it and elevating himself? Or was it simply excited, youthful exuberance? Have you ever had the experience where you were excited about something and you told somebody and realized it may have been something they didn't really want to hear? 
somebody who's really struggling financially and God blesses you and you're so excited how God has bestowed blessing upon blessing and every time you do it, it's just kind of rubbing the salt in their wound. We don't know what his intent was. Maybe it was just something really neat happened. And he shared it with him. Now, I will concede the second time, maybe he should learn from the first time. But again, I find it significant that the brothers used that as reason to justify the hatred they already had. Whereas dad said, son, probably wasn't the best thing for you to say. But dad thought, maybe there's something going on here. Either way, again, one side or the other, the older brothers might say, it's just not fair. I never have fancy dreams. I don't even remember my dreams. What about this notion of my little brother being boss over me? That's not fair. Or it could be for Joseph. It's just not fair. I I, I was just excited and I wanted to tell somebody. And I got kicked in the gut for it. We don't know. Then, as some of you know, the story takes a tragic turn. The older brothers are out tending the sheep out in the boondocks. And Joseph's father, Jacob, says, Hey, Joseph, go check on your brothers. It's imperative to understand. It was not Joseph's idea to go check on his brothers. His dad said, Go check on your brothers. So he was doing what he was told to do. As they see him coming, the older brothers make an assumption that he's coming to spy on them again. Now again, I say, if you're not doing anything wrong, do we need to be so concerned about Joseph showing up? I don't know. But I think, again, sometimes we, we let our own biases turn the story. But they see him coming, and they say, you know what? This is the last straw. He ratted us out once before. It's not going to happen again. So as he's approaching them, they come up with a plan. We're going to throw him in a pit, and we're going to go home and tell Dad that an animal ate him up, and we'll be done with this. So that was the plan as he gets closer. One, one of the brothers has an attack of conscience, and he, and he, and he's thinking, well, let's not just, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. And then by the scripture tells us he was thinking he'd come back later when nobody was looking and pull him out of the pit. All right. They beat him up, throw him in the pit, and then they sit down to have dinner. <laughs> Excuse me. And they're sitting there and they see some slave traders going by. And they think, you know what? We can get rid of the kid and make some money on the side. So let's pull him out of the pit. We'll sell him as a slave. Ha! That'll teach him. You think you're going to be boss over us? Ha! You'll go be a slave. So that's what they do. They pull him out of the pit. They take that fancy coat. They pour some goat's blood on it. And they take it home and say, Dad, sorry to tell you, but our dear brother Joseph got eaten by animals. We're so sorry. And they go on. Friends, I don't care how snotty Joseph may have been. I'm not saying he was, but if he was, I don't even care about that. 
This whole beating him, throwing him in a pit, and selling him as a slave, that's just not fair. I don't care. It's just not fair. So, Joseph gets taken to Egypt, and he's sold to the captain of the guard over Pharaoh's domain. This guy's name is Potiphar, and he is powerful. And it's it's amazing that Joseph gets into Potiphar's house as a slave, and he is... Now, maybe he was a snotty little brother, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But somewhere along the road, he becomes a man of character and integrity. And God honors that, even though he's a slave. And in Potiphar's house, it gets to the point that Potiphar doesn't worry about anything because Joseph's got it all covered. Scripture says the only thing Potiphar worried about was putting food in his mouth. Pretty much it. All right? So Joseph goes from being beaten, thrown in a pit, sold as a slave, slave in Egypt, foreign land, and now he's prospering. He's a successful slave in Potiphar's house. And many of you know the story. Potiphar's wife notices this young, powerful young man. Scripture implies that he was buff. She took notice of him physically without getting too crass. And she pursues him. And he resists. And he resists. And he says, you know what? Your husband, my boss, trusts me with everything. I will not betray that trust that God has on me, for me. It really wasn't even about honoring Potiphar. It was about honoring God. Because I'm not going there. Eventually, she's so desperate, she literally lays hands on him. And the only way he can get away is to leave his coat in her hand and take off. And so she's offended. She's hurt. She's embarrassed. So when Potiphar comes home, she says, you know that uh, slave guy? He attacked me. So you get this, don't you? Joseph does the right thing. And he goes to prison for it. He's been a slave. He's doing all right for himself. Things are going okay. I mean... We don't know what it would happen if he'd given in to Potiphar's wife's wishes. He may have never gone to prison. We don't know. He does the right thing. And he gets thrown in prison. Friends, no matter how you look at it, that's just not fair. So he's in prison. And this just this makes my head explode. He's in prison, and he gets there. He doesn't want to be there. He's there for not doing anything wrong. It wasn't fair. And friends, when life's not fair to me, sometimes I can get a stinky attitude. I'm sure none of you do that. But I can go there. But he goes to prison, And the next thing you know, because he's a man of character and integrity, he's running the prison as a prisoner. You talk about trustee status. Some of you know what that is, and some of you don't, and some of you shouldn't. But anyway, uh, he's got trustee status. And he's running the prison. And everything's going great. 
And one day, a couple of people from the king's court, from Pharaoh's court, they, they do something to upset the boss. And the king's cupbearer, the, the, the wine steward, if you will, and his baker get thrown in prison. And here Joseph, the, the Hebrew slave prisoner, is now taking care of the members of the king's court. And he's just going about his business. And one day the, the, the baker and the cupbearer just don't seem to be themselves. And come to find out they've had a, they've had a dream. They both had a dream the same night. And, and they have, they're in turmoil. They don't understand the dream. And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dream. Or I should say, God interprets the dream and gives the meaning to Joseph. And, and basically what it meant was, um, he said, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is, God, Pharaoh's going to reach out to both of you and remove you from prison. And he's going to lift both of you up. Only problem is when he lifts you up, one of you he's going to keep lifting until your head comes off. <laughs> and the other one is going to be restored. And he'll say, oh, which one? Which one? Pick me. Pick me. He, he says to the baker, sorry, it's not going to end well for you. And to the cupbearer, he says, it's going to go well for you. And when you're restored to your former glory, will you remember me? Remember that I gave you good news and I encouraged you, I took care of you? Will you remember me? Oh, sure, man, I got your back. It happened just the way Joseph said. And Genesis forty twenty three says, The cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. It's just not fair time and time and time again come on God that's just not fair to dream again scripture tells us that from the moment the cupbearer left saying, I got you, Joseph. As soon as I get some influence, you're out of here. Tells us it was two years. Two years. Then after, <coughs> excuse me, after two years, Pharaoh has a dream and he's troubled by it. And his cupbearer is doing his job, serving Pharaoh, whatever. And Pharaoh lets on that he's troubled by this dream. And come to find out, none of the wise guys in Pharaoh's court understand the dream. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer has this light bulb moment. Wait a minute. Way back in the day, you know, when you were upset with me and threw me in prison, you remember that, do you? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I didn't like that. But anyway... When I was in prison, there, there was this Hebrew there. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, there's this Hebrew there. And, and he, he interpreted my dream. 
Maybe he could help you out. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph, and they have this whole exchange. And Joseph comes, and God interprets Pharaoh's dream and allows Joseph to share it. And it's a whole elaborate deal about how tough times are coming on on Egypt and here's what you should do to be prepared. And Pharaoh takes this slave, this prisoner, this Hebrew, and says, wow, nobody else got that message in that dream. You get it. I think you should be in charge. Because basically what he's saying is we're going to have some really good years and then we're going to have seven really, really, really bad years. So in the seven good years, you better start stockpiling stuff. And Pharaoh says, wow, that's such a great plan that that why don't you be in charge of that? So now he's basically running the country. From running Potiphar's house to running the prison to basically running the country. And again, some of you know the story and you're there ahead of me. But as time passes, the dream comes becomes reality. And eventually things get really, really bad. To where nobody in the area has food except for Egypt because they had stockpiled food because Joseph told them that was the plan. And eventually it gets so bad... That Joseph's family, who have been living in another country, are so desperate that they say, the only place that's got food is in Egypt. Let's humble ourselves and go beg to see if Egypt will sell us food. And that's where the story just gets flat out crazy. They come to Egypt to beg to be able to buy food. And the person they have to ask is their snotty little brother. Problem is, you know how when when people move out of your life, their children stay the same age and size in your mind? You know what I mean? I've got grandsons, and it's like I see them every couple of weeks, and it's like, who are you? Because they're growing so fast. They don't recognize Joseph. They come and they beg for food and they don't recognize Joseph. And and Joseph, it's a great story. Joseph pretends like he doesn't recognize them. And amazingly, in spite of all the unfairness, Joseph is filled by compassion rather than a compulsion for revenge. And, and that's, that's the rest of the story. In the context of this series of messages, I would suggest to you that Joseph had two choices. One was, come on, God. That's just not fair. Let me stick it to him. Let me just lean on him big. He leans on him a little. Let let me lean on them big time. Let me give them what they've got coming. Or he has another choice. But God. But God. 
I told you that I did a did just a very simple word search on this. And this story doesn't have just one but God in it. Depending on your translation, it's got at least four or five. Let, listen as we read through this. Or follow along, I guess. That's even better. <clears throat> this is in chapter 45. Excuse me. This is chapter 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. So so they've been having this little interchange, and he sent them with food, and they had to come back, and it's a whole great story. Read it for yourself. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. So, so they don't know him yet. And he says, come close to me. When they had done so, he said to them, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Do you wonder what they were thinking? Oh, no. Oh, this isn't going to end well. How can this be? I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Do you remember that? Because I do. And now, he, he didn't even let him hang. What a guy. And now, do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. It's not, I'm furious with you for doing this. He's, don't be angry with yourselves. You're not bad people. I, I'm saying that's not fair. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. It's not even your fault. I just, I, I can't deal with this. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. It's going to get worse. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. You thought you were doing this? Ah, that was God. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. But God, I tell you what, I'd be blaming those brothers. Just an eh, ah. That was God's plan. But God. Wow. Then chapter 50. Now, a little bit happens between chapter 45 and chapter 50, but uh, they all come to Egypt and, and they survive the famine and all this stuff. And, and they get special places to live. Pharaoh treats them like royalty and, you know, it's all good. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, dad dies. Jacob. And the brothers, they haven't forgotten that they did J- Joseph dirt. And when dad dies, they think, Maybe he's just been waiting until dad's gone to stick it to us. And they're scared. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're slaves. We're your slaves, they said. In other words, dad's gone, please, please. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. <clears throat> what? But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you catch that? He says, let's be honest, brothers. You meant to hurt me. 
That was your intent. But God intended it for good. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family <coughs> excuse me, and lived 110 years. And saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, who were placed on Joseph's, at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then fast forward with me to the New Testament. As Stephen is preaching the message that got him killed, he goes back and retells this story. And he says, but because the patriarchs, the patriarchs are Joseph's brothers, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Friends, I don't know what this story does for you, but I will tell you for me, it generates a crazy jumble of feelings. I am humbled. I'm convicted. I'm inspired. I'm challenged. That through decades, friends, hear me well, decades of unfairness, time and time and time again. Joseph is somehow able to look through all of the pain, heartache, loss, fear, uncertainty, and say, but God. That, that stretches me. That stretches me. When I sense there's unfairness to wait year after year after year after year after year after year after year to see that change, that's a tough place for me to get to. So that story stretches me. But it holds a carrot out there that says maybe I need to keep pressing on. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, my closing prayer is going to be shorter than usual, and I'm going to pray it a couple times. And as I do, just let the words soak in, and, and you don't have to memorize it or quote it, but, but maybe let it become your prayer. And it's simply this. God, so fill me with your spirit that I may be able to trust you in the unfairness that comes my way. And look for the day that I will join, join Joseph in saying, but God. God, so fill me with your spirit that I may be able to trust you in the unfairness that comes my way. And look for the day that I will join Joseph in saying, but God. Oh, let that be the prayer of our hearts today. We ask this, not in our own strength, 
but in the strength and the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay.